Welcome to this podcast from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. My name is Dr. Ramai Santrapala. I'm a consultant anaesthetist and peroperative medicine lead at Geiser St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust. And I'm a Royal College of Anaesthetists Council member. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Professor Colin Melville in his capacity as Medical Director and Director of Education and Standards at the General Medical Council. Welcome, Colin, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about the new GMC guidance on decision making and informed consent, which was released in November 2020. The new guidance reflects the change in law towards the Montgomery ruling. It affects all of us involved in anesthesia and palliative care, from the consent of specific anesthetic techniques to supporting a multidisciplinary approach to shared decision making for surgery. Firstly, I wondered if you could let us know what the main updates in the new GMC guidance for informed consent are in the light of the Montgomery ruling. Yeah, thanks, uh, uh, and great to be with you. And it's uh, a great opportunity. I'm sure many of your listeners won't realise that I'm a fellow of the college and previously anaesthetist and intensivist, although now I work full time uh, for the GMC as its uh, director of education and standards. So um, I just wonder, let's just remind ourselves, so the Montgomery ruling um, had some statements in it, which I think were probably worth just uh, repeating for the audience's sake. So, and they, they said the doctor is under a duty to take reasonable care to ensure that the patient is aware of any material risks involved in any recommended treatment and of any reasonable alternative or variant treatments. And they went on to say that the test of materiality is whether in the circumstances of the particular case, a reasonable person in the patient's position would be likely to attach significance to the risk, or the doctor is or should reasonably be aware that the particular patient would be likely to attach significance to it. Now, I, I guess that sounds a bit sort of legal language. Uh, and I suppose the important thing to say is that the content of the guidance in many respects hasn't actually changed. Uh, and one of the things that the court said was that endorse, it endorsed the approach that uh, we set out in our 2008 guidance. So the main kind of changes have been around how we've structured some of the sections and sought to make it uh, easier to follow and maybe clarified um, some of the content. So uh, in some ways, I think what I'm trying to say to people is this is not a massive change but there's a change in the nuance uh, and also in the relationship. Perhaps I can put it like this. Uh, it's not so much I tell the patient what I'm going to do, sign here, consent, as a conversation that happens about the options that are available to a patient, which might include doing nothing, of course, uh, and giving them sufficient information for them to feel empowered to make their own decision. D does that help? I think a point that needs clarifying and potentially raises concern is the term material risk. I wonder how clinicians or healthcare professionals can translate this into clinical practice. Um, probably just worth saying that, you know, we don't make reference to material risks in the guidance. That phrase comes from the Montgomery ruling. Uh, that I, I mentioned early, but but the question is, OK, so what does that mean in reality? Um, and I suppose the point is it's about how we interpret a, a risk of harm that 
anyone in a patient's position um, might want to know about. So we kind of put this under four broad headings, um, which I think are useful just to keep in mind. So, so the first, and these are set out in the guidance, I should say, so that they can um, be checked out. The first is about, you know, recognised risks of harm that anybody in that position might want to know. Um, and I think, you know, that there's some fairly good uh, information for anaesthetists about, for example, just the risks of a general anaesthetic in general. Um, then the second bit is about the individual clinical circumstances. You know, what, what's, what's the likelihood of that harm occurring in that patient? And of course, that then takes into context the patient's medical history. Um, and, you know, in that conversation, that might uh, uh, highlight some other issues that come up. I mean, the, the classic kind of obvious example would be the concert violinist. You know, and if they're going to have left hand surgery and, and they use their left hand for fingering the strings, that will be much more important to them than perhaps someone who does a completely different job where that dexterity is not required. Then, then there's the question of uh, risks of harm and potential benefits that a patient themselves might consider significant. And that, of course, is, is very personal and uh, is likely to come in to uh, be revealed in the conversation that you have. And then I suppose the last bit is uh, the risk of serious harm. And again, I'm aware that the college has some documentation on that, uh, even if it's unlikely to occur. And that was probably what was at the heart of, you know, the Montgomery ruling is that there were elements of, of uh, Mrs. Montgomery's care, uh, which it, it was judged she would have been reasonably uh, uh, expected to be told in order to have made a decision. Uh, and there was that sense, I think, that because the clinicians felt that, that it wasn't appropriate for her to opt for a cesarean section, and in fact, given the information she was likely to opt for that, it created that um, difficulty on both sides. And I think that's the point of making it a bit, a bit clearer. And that's why this point about material risks has, has been brought into play. It goes back to that point I said before, it's not so much about I make the determination about what's best for the patient and I ask them to agree with me. It's about allowing patients to make their own decisions and probably just worth crossing over to the Mental Capacity Act. Remember that third principle that says you're allowed to make unwise decisions and that's about the patient's freedom to make those choices, um, but we have to give them sufficient information upon which to do that. So one challenge that we sometimes have as anaesthetists when offering anaesthetic techniques is there are a number of different options. And each of us might have a preferred option or inverted commas, the right thing to do in that particular case. In light of the new GMC guidance, is there now advice on how we offer those options, especially in the context of deciding, for example, whether to go ahead with a regional technique or not? Obviously, underpinning this is that we need the right skill and there needs to be a caveat when offering these options. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is difficult, isn't it? And I, of course, I can speak somewhat from my own personal uh, history as uh, as an anaesthetist who used to do an orthopaedic list where actually using blocks was quite a common thing thing to do. You have to balance that, don't you, around your own, you know, what what is what you believe or what your evidence says is the most appropriate thing for you to do because that's the thing you're most confident to deliver. There aren't always right answers. I mean, uh, I remember a colleague 
uh, when I was at Lancaster was actually doing a study on uh, general anesthesia or regional anesthesia for um, um, fractured neck of femur. I mean, I think that's been around, <laughs> that discussion's been around for a long time. Uh, and to some extent, it, it falls down to it depends who's giving the anaesthetic and what their experience is. So all of those things come into it, don't they? Um, but it's about explaining that to the patient and being open and honest with them about what the choices are. Uh, I mean, there are not not an infinite number of choices, but there are usually a range of choices, even down to which drugs you're going to use if you're going to give a general anaesthetic. So it is about the balance of what's reasonable for the patient to know um, and, uh, you know, not not to go through every possible harm, um, but it's but it's also about giving them a balance of information on a reasonable basis. What would they expect to know in order to reach a decision? Thanks for that, Colin. I think the other context as an anaesthetist where we'll meet shared decision making is counselling patients for potentially high risk surgery or a high risk patient undergoing surgery. Now, in this circumstance, sometimes the longer term outcomes are not known, particularly if you do not proceed with surgery. What can we do to advise clinicians on how to manage these risks when they're unclear? Again, with reference to the new guidance. Yeah, I suppose that I, it's, it seems very simple to say this, doesn't it? But it is actually about being honest, I think, and being open with patients. You know, even as there is this sense, um, there's an old uh, phrase, isn't there? Trust me, I'm a doctor. And I think we're learning more that you know, these things are not black and white, then they're, they're not always straightforward. Um, sometimes there are things that we don't know, but the knowledge is elsewhere. And sometimes there are things where there is no knowledge. And I think that's uh, about being open and honest with patients. I mean, I, I do recall occasionally in the past saying to patients, not in the context of anaesthesia, to be fair, but in the context of intensive care, um, you know, I don't know, I can go and check and see if you know, there is an answer somewhere else, but it, it, there may not be uh, evidence to support this or there may not be a right answer. And I think that's that's the bit that perhaps sometimes we feel a bit uncomfortable with. There's this sense that somehow we should have an answer. Um, and, and for me, it's just about being honest and saying, I'm afraid we don't know. There, no one knows if that's if that's the um, question. Then they may come back to you and say, well, what would you do? And I think you can offer, in my view, um, an opinion about what you would do, but it's still for them uh, to make that final decision, isn't it? Because we all have a different approach to uh, things around risk and uncertainty. So for someone, you know, a one in a one in a hundred chance of dying um, would seem low, but for others would seem high. But until you have that conversation, you can't know that, for example. So, so far we've spoken a lot about how this affects the professional lens through which we can implement the GMC guidance. But how about flipping it to informed consent through the eyes of the patients? Yeah, it's another interesting one, isn't it? I, I'm not sure where the two-stage consent bit comes from. We don't make reference to that um, term specifically, but I, but I do understand the principle that says that um, patients should be given information and allowed time to 
you know, kind of digest it, assimilate it, ask questions about it uh, before reaching a conclusion. So, so that notion of giving of information and then coming back to it and saying, how do you feel now? You know, are you still comfortable? So that the first step, if you like, is more around a discussion of options. And then that second point is about, all right, so what, which option, if you like, um, do you feel is the right one for you? I suppose would would come under that bracket of a two-staged um, consent. Um, it probably illustrates something about the 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 title of the um, new guidance, where we talk about decision making and consent. And I think it is about decision making. There are many parts of our lives where you know, whether it's choosing a new car or a kitchen, I know they're not the same as, as uh, significant healthcare choices, but you go and gather information, then you ponder it, and then you weigh it up, and then you make a decision. It is that decision-making, which is a, often a process rather than at a moment in time. And let's remember, it's not the signature on the form on the day, probably, that is the important part of this. It's actually the conversation that has led to that decision. Uh, and without the meaningful dialogue, the signature is probably meaningless anyway. Yes, I agree with that. And that's really informative. Another aspect is how we document and essentially affirm that the decision making process has occurred. Do you have any advice or any good examples with respect to this? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I have to say, and, I, and I'm not saying this just because uh, someone's told me to say it, um, but actually, I, I think the college's uh, website with its patient information uh, leaflet section can be really helpful. Um, you know, it's hard, isn't it, to remember all of the points all of the time consistently. And actually giving uh, a patient a resource, whether that's, a, I think a lot of these are leaflets, but I think there are also some um, videos uh, uh, explaining things as well. These are really helpful, and the fact that some of those are actually available in multiple languages, I think, is a real uh, tribute to the to the college's work on this. There are some other um, examples. Um, I can't remember now, but I think I've seen something on a different website which uses a kind of narrated animation um, approach. And of course, there's no one right answer to that either. Some people would prefer to have a conversation. Some people would prefer to read literature. Some would probably want to watch a video. Um, all of those, I think, are helpful in providing, if you like, the, the background and the backdrop. And then that allows the anaesthetist and the clinician to then say, is there anything in there that I can help to uh, unpack a bit further for you or anything that's not quite making sense for you that would, you know, so I can help you in reaching a decision. So I think those sorts of resources are, are really useful. Thanks, Colin. Also, just to extend the discussion around documentation, in light of the new guidance, is there anything that as a clinician or a healthcare professional we need to potentially clarify? Yes, so I think um, the Academy has some general guidance, doesn't it, on what to write in medical notes and all the rest uh, along those lines. So I think it is important to uh, make a record of what you've done. So if you've given access to a patient information leaflet or you've discussed it, summarising any queries that a patient raises uh, are quite important. My personal advice, uh, by the way, is always use the language the patient uses. We have an awful lot of um, 
kind of uh, shortcut language that we use as doctors patients rarely use and I think it's helpful to be able to use the words and the phrases that patients use and even the words and the phrases we use in reply um, ra rather than um, using shorthand so uh, just off the top of my head a very uh, quick uh, thought would be for example if you were going to put um, say a jugular line in now everyone knows that the risk of pneumothorax is smaller um, in that than if it was through a subclavian approach but you wouldn't write in the notes um, risk of pneumothorax explained because if that were challenged the patient might turn around and say no one mentioned pneumothorax to me so I think there is something about trying to get the language right here that sometimes causes us some problems because we use these short short forms that are easy for us but don't help patients so I think it's better to stick to kind of language um, that they would understand and recognise if they then came back and saw the notes. So just to clarify, it's really to document through the eyes of the patient or rather in the patient's words. And that's how we can support the new guidance best. Yeah, absolutely. So a further question would be what can individual anaesthesia departments do? Perhaps three steps that they can do to support their workforce to ensure that they are compliant with the new guidance or at least have an awareness of it? Yes, I, I, this is a really good question um, because uh, I think it, it is this balance, isn't it, of, of the organisation's responsibility and the, and the individual's responsibility. So I think departments should consider about what is their approach to how information is provided to patients in advance? I mean, it kind of echoes the earlier question that uh, that you asked, uh, and maybe it is about using Royal College materials, but they may have their own um, ways of doing things as well. But at least if everyone in the department knows what the resources are, um, I think that's that's helpful. And having a good governance and clinical governance process to approving those and signing them off would probably be really um, helpful understanding some of the challenges um, so we talked about different languages um, but different patient groups um, different disability groups uh, you know where capacity may may vary there might be some nuances to that having policies around that on I think would be really helpful I think the other two things uh, one of which we've already touched on is about how we make a record in the patient's notes and having an approach to how how it is done um, I think is really helpful. It's not it's not um, inevitable that the anaesthetist who has the conversation with the patient may be the person delivering the anaesthetic. So actually, not only is it helpful for the patient, but it's also helpful to your colleagues if they become um, the anaesthetist on the day that they can see what was discussed and what was raised. I think that would be really helpful. And the last one, I suppose, is. Um, that whole thing about learning to listen. Um, I've done far too much talking, I think, on this podcast, but actually listening to patients and, and getting them to talk rather than feeling that we've got to rush through. And I know that's a challenge uh, in the current climate. And just being open and honest with them and encouraging all colleagues to do that uh, would be, I think, really helpful. So providing information in advance, making clear records in the patient's notes for the benefit of the patient and potentially colleagues and then learning to listen to patients and encouraging them to talk about what matters to them. 
So increasingly as anaesthetists, we're involved in that multidisciplinary shared decision-making, supporting decisions around whether or not to proceed with surgery. My question to you, Colin, is where does the responsibility lie with individual professional groups that are involved in that decision-making process? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And actually, I think it's a really, really good question. Uh, and I'm just pondering um, my my sense of it, and I would need to see if it's, if it, if it's clarified in the guidance. So, so apologies for that. But I think one of the points is that I I as a an anaesthetist um, would feel somewhat frustrated if a surgeon chose to consent a patient for anaesthesia, and I'm sure they'd be pretty concerned if I consented them for the surgery. So so I do think there's a, a measure of um, responsibility for that which you are overseeing. Um, and so if you are the consultant anaesthetist who is, you know, overseeing a, a more junior person or an um, anaesthesia associate even potentially, um, then I think the responsibility lies with that consultant or the most, let's put it this way, the most senior responsible person for that list. Because um, in, in my memory, Anesthesia, I think, is well put together in the sense that we delegate downwards, we don't escalate upwards. So if a more junior anaesthetist has been allocated to undertake work on their own, it is because they're deemed competent to do so. Uh, and therefore they would take responsibility. But of course, the NHS will also look at its own responsibility as an organisation. So there's the personal and the system responsibility for these things. That's great. That's brilliant advice. It was fantastic to hear and really understand how decision-making consent guidance can be implemented into our everyday clinical practice. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, of course, that document is available on the GMC's website and can be downloaded uh, for any of your colleagues. And I'm sure um, the link can be made available to them. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this RCOA podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts as well as videos, e-learning, webinars and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.